Welcome to The Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. On today's show, Rebecca interviews Mary Duffy, an Irish painter from Wicklow who works in abstraction and landscape. Mary was born without arms and says, I paint with my eyes and my heart. Without further ado, here's Rebecca Kroll. Welcome to the Messy Studio, Ireland edition. I'm here today with Mary Duffy, an Irish artist from Wicklow. And um, Mary has been involved in performance art, photography, and now painting for the last 12 years, painting. And uh, welcome, Mary. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, and, and Mary has another interesting aspect to her life in that she was born without any arms. And so um, we'll be talking a little bit about how, how she's dealt with that throughout her career, as well as talking about her, um, her various uh, interesting forays into different aspects of art and might, uh, maybe how they've fed one another and so on. So Mary, why don't you tell us a little bit about your early life and how you got started with art? Well, my early life, when in my early life, I was very young. And as soon as I was very young, a paintbrush was put between my toes because this was what was considered the only option for somebody like me. And so I had that expectation, but I had very few other expectations to burden me. And um, because I was born without arms, not many people knew anything about, no, nobody really knew what to expect. But that didn't stop the medical profession expounding with great authority. Things like none of us would live past the end of the century, what? the last century. So I fully expected to be dead by the time I was 22. And this is because the you're... Being born without arms was the result of thalidomide. Yes. Yeah. So they so didn't they... expect anybody really to survive. And really? half the people who were born with the effects of thalidomide didn't survive the first few weeks. Oh. Or, yeah. Okay. So, the yeah. So that ha that has a big impact on my life in that I never had any great plan. I'm always willing to try new things. And I have a great sense of impermanence. Mm. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to last. Um, but even so, when I found myself at the age of 45 and I had what I describe as a near-death experience, it was that that propelled me into painting, which I figured is what I really wanted to do all along. But I artfully managed to avoid. And what was this experience that you had when you were 45? I had a series of block, uh, blackouts, <coughs> sudden, mm. and my bladder went at the same time, and nobody ever figured out what the problem was. Huh. But I got over it. I gave up my job that you know at the time and uh, decided to become a serious painter. And you, but you'd been in, involved in art all along. Yes. From very early then. And, and and it was a struggle for me. It was a struggle for me from when I was five years old from when I was five years old because there was this association with um, painting Christmas cards which appeared to be charitable 
exercise, but it's really a business exercise. Um, so it's not a charity, and there is this association, and I found it really difficult. And I found it difficult that this was all that was expected of me. And I knew I wasn't a very good painter, even as a five-year-old. So that was a, you know, it so, was... So when you said they gave you a paintbrush at five, that was meant as sort of your career... No, was five months old, more like. Okay, so from very early on, yeah. they figured, people around you figured that would be what you could do. Yes, that was all I could do. That was it. Oh, and like, it's I, a very interesting introduction to art. <laughs> well, I mean, just it was taken very seriously. Yeah. I mean, my parents were really concerned, as you are, about a five-year-old's employment prospects. And so this was it. So I was taken out of school at five and brought to the middle school or high school. with, And I was put in with 15 and 16-year-olds to learn how to paint. I see. Huh. Yeah. And it's interesting that in your later life, you can embrace painting as, as what you do truly want to do when it yeah. was sort of thrust on you so early as this is what you are going to do. Yes, I know. It was really hard, but I got over myself, I guess. <laughs> and <in laughs> but the- I mean, I really like, I really like a lot of physical things and I really don't have the equipment for it. Uh-huh. So I'm really good masseuse. I love massage. I love making bread. I used to make my own clothes until I got a sewing needle put in my foot. Oh, yes. Painful. (laughs) And it stuck there for for 20 years. So, yeah. You know, I like everything kind of physical Mm. and I like messing with things and putting, you know, putting things together and taking them apart. The physicality, the tactile. And so paint is perfect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, paint is perfect for me. And in in the meantime, though, you had other pathways. So at some point you stopped painting altogether or no? Well, I, I wasn't very good at school. I wasn't bad. But from when I was very young, I got the what would you say, the comment on my work, me kuramak, you know, careless. Ah. And it just really followed me. Now, why am I saying that? What did you ask me? Sorry. Oh, um, I ask you, so you started out painting young. Oh, yeah. And then in between you did performance and photography and you were in a film and so yeah. on. Um, I just wondered what brought you back to painting or what took you away from it, kind of that okay. that route. Well, I went to art college in 1978, and mm. painting was considered very old-fashioned. Yeah. And the facilities were really bad, and I was discouraged from painting uh, because I'd muck up the floor. Mm-hmm. And I had already taught myself using oil paints, and the idea of not being able to use oil paint in an art college was just really painful. It's just not right. <laughs> And there was also no instruction, and nobody really knew anything. I mean, I had a former teacher, and I nearly ran him down when I saw him 20 years later. (laughs) You know, he was such an idiot. But he failed me, of course, um, on grounds that I allowed my disability to influence how I made something. Uh. Like, get away. Of course, why wouldn't I? (laughs) The, The instruction was to make a piece of sculpture in repeat. Mm-hmm. And the, 
the job was to make a plywood mould and fill it with plaster and make loads of them. Mm-hmm. So together, the units would make... And I, I started mine... And people were walking on my work and I was going around like a maniac looking at shoe prints and it was just not a nice environment. Mm. So I made my thing first and then I did the drawings after. That was my first point of failure. And the second point of failure was everybody made theirs the size of an orange, mm-hmm. hand-sized. And I made mine knee-high. Uh-huh. Now I made my knee-high, my units, because they're easier to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was using a hacksaw. I had no help whatsoever. I was cutting plywood, and this is how I wanted to make it. Yeah. And I was failed on the grounds that I allowed my disability to influence what I made. So. Yeah. It was just crazy. I mean, just nuts, I think. Yeah. Really. I just think it was just so... Like, what's so wrong with it? You know, yeah. what's, what's so wrong? Yeah. Well, he had oh. a certain idea that was in his head that he wanted you to do, and... I don't know. It seems a little crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I succeeded in making the thing, and if I hadn't done it that way, I wouldn't have succeeded in making mm-hmm. it, so I would have right. failed anyway. But right. So all along, I suppose, whatever the medium is you're working in, there, your disability, your lack of arms, is part of what you do. Absolutely. Yes. It influences your materials. It influences your scale. Yes. All kinds of things. And... That's just, it's good, it's an acceptable, it's it's who you are, it's what you do. Yes. And so to deny that is, um, it it shows a lack of empathy or understanding. It shows a lack of respect, respect. in my opinion. Yes. Not only to me, but to other disabled people as well. Yeah. Because disability is seen as a bad thing. Right. And I think that's not true. It's like everything else. There's good... I I consider myself that my disability has brought me great gifts. Yes, and I... As well as difficulties. Let's not, you know, (laughs) pretend. It's it's the whole picture. It's the whole package, yes. And so to deny a part of the whole package, the whole who you are, is disrespectful, as you say. And so Mm. I suppose there are a lot of people that just don't want to deal with that and say you should overcome it like you should just be like everyone else but no that's, that's not I should, realistic i should and it's not respectful i don't know what the word is i should my father comes into my mind but he used to be really irritated that i would describe myself as a disabled person uh-huh. and we used to argue about this a lot i see it's a bit like he considered it a failure if I was a disabled person. Yeah, I don't well, know. It, it's just it, there's a desire, I think, for conformity and that people fit the mold of what we expect. A but nobody fits any mold. They don't. And it's all a big <laughs> lie. <laughs> and we're all individuals and we all deal with things very differently. Mm-hmm. And And it makes some people very uncomfortable to see someone who is clearly outside the mold and makes them want maybe want to put you in the mold like this guy that you had for a teacher i i don't know maybe he thought he was doing you some good by making you shape up and conform or something <laughs> he was just 
He spent too long in college, basically. <laughs> he never quite left college, he, you yeah. know. But anyway, yeah. I mean, m unfortunately, a lot of my tutors were students during the 60s and they didn't learn a whole lot. Right. Yeah. You know, it and was, they, it was a strange they were kind of stranded in the in this teaching role without any skills. Right. There was a strange time of teaching during that era, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And I was trained as a teacher, God help me. Mm. You know, so <laughs> I yeah. knew even less than they did. <laughs> Which so, is why I wanted to give myself, when I turned 45, the education that I I figure I needed when I was 18. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so when you when you went you went through college and you did you did you work as a teacher after that or I no? did what did you teach I taught art to what age <sighs> well I found it really difficult to get a job and so I developed a skill I worked for <clears throat> a, a company who supplied substitute teachers mm -hmm. and I so I would be called up at seven or eight in the morning and asked, could I be somewhere? Yeah. And I would arrive. And if they saw me, if the principal saw me, she would decide. Most often it was a she. She didn't need anybody. Oh. And I was sent home again. And nobody ever said anything. So I figured if I could avoid the principal, get to the secretary, who never felt empowered enough to tell me to go away. And if I could survive until 11 o'clock, I was OK. <laughs> so I did that for a couple of years. And um, then I got a proper job that nobody else wanted. It was driving between four different schools and I was called the art teacher for the county of Westmeath. Mm. And that was really nice. Yeah. I was teaching in four different um, rural... Well, one was a, a school in a big town. But I taught the kids that were rejected by all the other... In oh. this big school. Uh -huh. And that was kind of nice. I really liked that. I really liked... Um, I mean, they they had an idea that they were no good with about you. Know, they they were just no good at anything. The students, the students, had, yeah. they had this idea. So I liked to get them to make artwork that they had no idea what it should look like, so they couldn't criticize themselves. Yeah. And anyway, so that was kind of nice. And then I also good, yeah. worked as an artist in prison, in an oh. artist in residence, in uh, several prisons. Wow. And yeah. I did. Um, but I got invited to the Women's Caucus for the Arts in New York in some year. And some year, it was 19, I think it was 1987. And I was very excited. And I asked my boss if I could go away for two weeks at Easter. And she wouldn't let me off really? from my art teacher in the county job. So I gave up the job. Secure that I would get another one, but I never got another job. Hmm. Well, not a, not another teaching job. Um, so you were on your own then with, with making your own way? I always did lots of different things. Yeah. I always had my toes in many puddles. Um, yeah. It was a difficult time in Ireland. There's high unemployment and mm -hmm. I created a lot of my own work. I'm really good at writing grant applications. Uh-huh. So, Yeah. So I did a you've, lot. you've had a very, uh, you've been inventing yourself many times over in your life. Yes. <laughs> and um, so you said you've been painting for about 12 years. And I know that a good part of that anyway was uh, plein air painting. Yes. 
going out in the landscape. And tell us a little bit about how what what that's meant to you, or do you still do it, or what did you enjoy about it? How did it work for you? I really loved it. Mm-hmm. That was past tense. When you said that, is it is it still past tense now? Hmm. I think it is. I mean, maybe not. It. I. My whole life has been one big adjustment. I always think it's a bit like riding a banana, sitting on a banana, trying to ride a unicycle. <laughs> what? That's okay. Well, sorry. I've always I've cycled all my life. Oh. I've always liked cycling. Yeah. And I've always looking for the perfect bicycle. But I got this kind of bicycle that looked like it's a recumbent, and you kind of lie back on it. Sure. Yeah. But it's as wobbly as hell. It's got two wheels, and you have to somehow balance. And it was really difficult to ride this thing called a flavo. But when I eventually mastered it, I mean, the biggest problem was that people with arms could grip a handlebar that was at their hips, mm-hmm. but I couldn't. So every time I went up over a pothole, I didn't come back down on the bike. But once I figured that out, I then give up. But anyway, I, I got another bike. But, you know, for me, it's all about adjustment. But... I used to, I suppose, yeah, okay. So I used to go out into the landscape by myself with a big haversack on my back, Mm -hmm. something else over my neck and a a canvas under my chin. And I'm just past it, basically. I'm going to be 57 quite soon. Mm -hmm. And I just don't have the muscle power to to stand up carrying all that stuff. I can carry it all if somebody will put it on me, but I cannot kick myself up and stand I can barely I can sit on the ground and stand up just about <laughs> you know so that is a problem that I have yeah. to deal and, with and there's a lot of equipment for plein air right I know people can be quite efficient about it but you still have to have a well, lot yeah, of stuff I always want those little push ad boxes I have one but it's no not I like the big stuff you like the big stuff big big canvases yeah. big tubes of paint yeah. yeah so a couple of years ago I I hurt my neck and it meant I couldn't move my nose past my nipple. Mm. I couldn't, and I couldn't lift my head. It was really difficult. So I decided to change at that point. I, I, working from a studio never appealed to me. It just never appealed to me. But I made a deliberate effort to explore that as an option. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Cornwall, to St. Ives, to a, a place that professed to explore abstraction or something Mm -hmm. so I went along and it was very interesting a lot of mark making and but then something happened and I made this image and I really liked it it was just beautiful Um, and that set me off but it wasn't yeah it was Uh, you you did an abstraction that you really liked is that what you're saying well, I was really just covering a sheet of paper with black oil paint, I think, uh-huh. and you and thinning it. And it, I was, it was this was a preparation thing, you know, preparatory to paint on black mm-hmm. black card. But as I painted it, I used the thinner to create a kind of flow, 
and I used to, and I just really liked it. And I had the brains just to leave it at that, and it was uh -huh. beautiful. I really liked it. I thought maybe there's something in this, you know. I never. So a little, a little glimpse of possibility there. Well, I really liked the image. I was just, it really, really, I really liked it. Yeah. And I thought, okay, maybe there's something in this. Well, and I think the the hard part of moving into abstraction, you know, one of the there's a lot of hard parts, right? But mm. one of them is to feel some kind of personal meaning or connection mm. to the work, and and you can push paint around all day, and you can, yeah, you know, make marks and whatnot, and it can be okay. This is a, a new way of moving paint around, but until you feel that connection I think mm -hmm. as you're describing here you don't really see that door opening to what it could be I never really wanted to move into abstraction all I wanted to move in from was the feels you know <laughs> I want to be able to paint in my studio kind of happily I see and I did quite a lot of portraiture and I really liked that and life studies um, but it was something lacking mm -hmm. you know I felt it was very good for my head yeah but the images were ultimately unsatisfying mm -hmm. so I really wanted to not so much I just want to be able to paint in the studio I could never use photographs as a starting point really mm -hmm. they never did it for me I cannot understand copying which, a photograph well even saying the word makes me want to cringe <laughs> you know I know people do but I just found them yeah. and but you, you had some background in photography as you mentioned to me before we got started, yes. um, I think it's a way of seeing, isn't it? I mean, when you when you're photographing, that a way of seeing that can translate into your work, yeah. not necessarily referring to it at all, but it's a way of framing things or seeing yeah. things, comp composing maybe. There's something about the flatness of the image that just doesn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would love to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've talked to other artists about this, and one in particular said that he used moving images, and that made sense to me. Uh huh. Something on a loop. Oh, I see. As as a kind of feeding the work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There is I, that static quality to photographs. That yeah. It. I get what you mean. It's um. Or even just being out. It's the memory of the place. Yes. That I really like, and the photograph helps that. But mm -hmm. the idea of Using a photograph as the only point, you know. Yeah, I, I find in my own work that memory plays a huge part because it kind of distills mm. what you experienced and you come away with something that isn't still at all. It's a, it's a compilation mm. of what you were experiencing. And that photographs can, to me, they're important when I'm in the place. They're sort of acknowledging the reality of what I'm seeing but then I don't refer to them either. They're just, they are part of the process somehow, but it's mm. its a little off. It's not direct. And you, mm. you do photograph now, right? When you're out or no? Uh, yeah. Yeah. We can't resist around here, right? <laughs> well, I kind of thought this is my second time here. So I thought my first time photographs can do. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but, should, yeah. I should mention, I don't think I did at the introduction that we are um, in Valley Castle and Mary's been in my course on, um, cold wax painting here at Bowen Glen Arts Foundation, second time. First time was a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And so I know that before you came here, you were using acrylic paint. 
uh, for your plein air work and other things as well, I guess. Did you use oil as well, or was it mostly acrylic? No, it was mostly an oil painter. Oh, you were? Okay. Mm. Well, we we were watching some, some footage of film of your painting in acrylic, so that's mm. why I thought that. But, but you had been using oil then. Yeah. But yeah. the cold wax was a new aspect for you. Yes. I... I felt very, very fortunate to be able to get a last-minute cancel, cancellation. And I had seen your work, and I had no idea how you did it or what it meant. So I had to ring you up and ask you. And I remember telling you that if you could do it with the one hand, I could probably do it. You know, but if you needed two hands to do it, I probably couldn't. I mean, I often, you know, for me, that's a handy reference when I'm trying to think about oh, yeah. if I can do something. Yeah. Well, I remember the the phone call when we'd had an opening in the course and Una put me on the phone and you told me who you were and then you said, there's something I have to tell you. And I said, what's that? You I, said, I told you to take a deep breath first. That's right. Open your mind and relax. And then you said, I said, so what is it you have to tell me? And you said, I have no arms. I said, okay. You did not. You said, what? <laughs> I, I said, I don't have any arms. And you said, what? <laughs> And I said, I don't have any upper limbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. It was a bit of a surprise. But there yeah. was surprise, but I immediately readjusted yes, thought you did. <laughs> and said, what do you need in order to be able to work? And you said, you need a place where you can spread out on the floor, basically. Mm. And that, and that, like you say, if you could do it yeah. with one, if I could do it with one arm, you could do it with your foot. And so... We um, worked that out, and mm. and it seems like over time, and you've kept on painting this way, that you've developed certain adaptive mechanisms. Like you have a little tray now with your tools on it, with little with wheels on it, so you can access your different squeegees and brayers and things, and that you don't necessarily um, you you don't want to take the time to try to clean them in between. So you have a number of different tools. And um, and all that, and I, I was impressed last time you came also with how you've come up with a sort of adaptive hardware, I guess I would mm. say, how you carry things around. Yeah, um, my panels, but that was a big mistake, Rebecca. That you brought those I remember panels. you didn't miss a beat when I told you I hate working small and I want to work large. And you said, okay, you know. Mm-hmm. But... I spent my whole time trying to cover these panels instead of listening to you. So, you know, it was a real waste of energy. But it was, you know, figuring out what works. I know, but I was so busy trying to come up with my own adaptive tools and my own squeegee scraper and my... Mm -hmm. Like I got something that a plasterer uses right. with a handle on it and I, I used a hacksaw to make a bigger hole so my foot would fit in so I wouldn't have to grip it. Mm-hmm. And so it was, I think I was probably here a week before I realized that you had this squeegee and it was really nice and delicate and the lovely things, you know, because I spent all of my time just trying to cover my yeah. six 30 by 20 inch panels, <laughs> you know, that I had created this ingenious system for even how to carry them home wet, stacked. You so, know. You, I mean, I think you, you came in wanting to be on top of the, the yes. techniques that would work for you. Yeah. And it turned out that what I was teaching wasn't quite, I mean, you didn't, you had to be there and experience it to know what adaptive tools you needed, I would think. Uh, that doesn't really work for me. What? Figuring it out after the event. Like, simple things, 
Like, it would take me a very long time to mask off a sheet of paper. Right, yeah. And it, it, it irritates me that they're crooked. So therefore, the fact that this time I came with them already done yes. is yeah. just so lovely. <laughs> right. But that's what I mean. You kind, yeah. of, kind of have to scope out the situation. Well, what, what yeah, am I going to so be asked hard. to do? It's so you know? hard. And it's so nice to be welcomed into a place like this. You know, because it is so hard to think, oh, my God, how am I going to get, you know. Every detail. And I kind of felt I was a bit past it, really. You know, I mean, it's like I remember when I went to art college, other people were worried about going somewhere they didn't know anybody or I didn't know anybody in the, you know, in -hmm. the college or in the, you know, I was going. But that didn't really bother me. I had to get an apartment I had to figure out how to open the front door, yeah. buy my groceries, use, you know. And the same thing coming here is, can I open the door? Can I use the mm. shower? Probably not. Mm. You know. Yeah. You know, all that stuff. So this time coming back, it's been easier, I would imagine. Well, I thought I would be back in the same accommodation. So I figured I had all that sussed. Oh, and so I was put somewhere else entirely, which really upset me no end, because it's a whole new learning thing. Uh-huh. You know. And it's, it's... And it's just the stress of it. So all the people make all the difference. Yeah. It's a good group here. It's a good group. Very. And... Or just accepting it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it is very hard for people to put themselves in the position of imagining what you would need or what, you know, what would make it easier... And we don't always we don't always have the imagination to imagine. Do you imagine. mean the people in Bel- in, in Belen or lots me? Of people. No, not you. Oh, I yeah. think the people around you who are um, putting you up or having you oh, into yeah. their classes or whatever. Yeah. It's hard to imagine what it is I that will make can't. it the easiest. No, I, I think you can't imagine. Can't. I can't imagine it myself. So I just have to keep my mind open mm-hmm. and bring my bar stool. Yeah, <laughs> or two, so I can get my feet into the a sink somewhere, you know. That, then that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's you a, know, but I think an open mind and a willingness makes all the difference. And I, I think, uh, you know, and you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you kind of had that in your life, that open mindedness, mm-hmm. uh, knowing uh, impermanent, a sense of impermanence, adapting to different situations, and. And that it's it's true in your work as well that you you've tried all these different media and approaches and things and you're still open to coming to a course like this where everything would be different. So it's um I think it's an interesting aspect of of your life that carries. It sounds like it carries through in different areas to be um, like I said very open minded. Mm-hmm. Have to That's, be yeah just. Just to end on that, or I don't know if we're coming near the end, but I have a policy that I don't generally tell people in advance that I have no arms. Uh huh. Because I think it just freaks them out. Yeah. And they deal with it whenever I arrive, and it's okay. But otherwise, people just worry, and sure, I can imagine all these things that I haven't even thought of. Right. So I try not to tell people because I think it only worries them. I think that's probably smart. Yeah. I know. That's why. And then when I do tell them, I have to tell them to relax and yeah. breathe deeply <laughs> and not panic. <laughs> because it is a kind of scary thing. And most people haven't met somebody without arms before. Right. And and I think people worry they don't want to offend you. They don't want to be 
patronizing. They don't all these things that people are afraid they might come across as. And and I think personality wise, uh, that you're you're very accepting and open, and so mm -hmm. it, it relaxes people. And I think it's gone, it's gone well here both mm -hmm. times. I would think with the group. Yeah. Um, and I, I would, I guess, what I would like to add on is is a little phrase that you have told me when. Uh, tell the little story about how when people they always want to know, do you paint with your mouth or your feet? Oh yeah, it's, it's just yeah. I'd just like to add on that one. That's a good one. I always say I paint with my eyes and my heart. And sometimes, if somebody actually gets that, mm -hmm. it can be the beginning of a really good conversation. And if they don't get it, it's the short end to a bad conversation. <laughs> Well, I hope we've had a good conversation today, I think Mary. We have. Yes. <laughs> and th thank you. Thank you very much for um for being part of the messy studio. Okay, thank you, Rebecca. Well, that about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. You can find The Messy Studio on Facebook, as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. Please make sure to check out www.coldwaxbook.com and www.rebeccacroll.com and sign up for the email list to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating and a review. Remember to share the show with friends and family and anyone who you think will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment and a bit of sound advice. In the meantime, embrace your creative space. Messy or otherwise. Thank you.